Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Britain is the home of many motoring-related things. For instance, um, it's the home of performance and luxury cars. Ariel, BSC Mono, Morgan, Lotus, Westfield, Caterham, Jaguar Land Rover, Bentley, Aston Martin, Rolls-Royce. The Germans might make more, but they don't make as many. It's the home of motor racing, and Britain is the home of the self-built car. Yes, I'm talking kit cars. My guest this week, he's super knowledgeable, super passionate about his subject. Great guy. He's from Total Kit Car Magazine, and his name is Steve Hall. I was learning the trumpet because I'm from the north of England, and there's a great brass band tradition. I was going to say that, in, yeah. In the north of England. There's a great movie, by the way, called Brassed Off with Ewan McGregor and the late, great Pete Postlethwaite, oh, yeah, who yeah. was a, a Warrington man and one of the best actors this, yeah, this nation's yeah. ever produced, called Brastoff, about the brass band tradition. Okay. Now, I had an ulterior motive. I didn't want to be in a brass band. I wanted to be Miles Davis. Yes, I know I'm a white boy from Berry Lancashire, but I desperately wanted to be as cool, or at least maybe a little bit as cool, as Miles Davis. So I had the dark glasses, yeah. I had the black roll neck sweater, yeah. and I bought a trumpet. <laughs> and the bloke who was teaching me to play the trumpet had, in his backyard that was converted into a garage, mm. where he'd built this car, mm. a Nova. There you go, a Richard Oakes creation. Yep. So the Nova... Tell us, Steve, tell us about the Nova and its sort of tortured history. The Nova was designed by the genius that is Richard Oakes, who is still alive and kicking and, and still sort of lives in Cornwall now. But when he was the man that created the Nova and it went through, he moved, I think, him and his partner, they went to, moved up to Accrington, I think. Uh, they designed it in Southampton and then took advantage of a government, one of these government grants that they were lobbing out in the 70s and such like and ended up in Accrington. My pal did that with his with his workforce. They were based here in Manchester. Yeah. And he he saw Probably. in the he no. saw in the Sunday Times that was some sort of yeah. deal like rent free premises for two years, exactly. really low taxes. So yeah. he went in and announced to his workers that they were moving to Stranraer in Scotland. Oh, gosh. That's a bit of a trek, that one. I think one of them went with him. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, you go. you've got the, the, the auto business, the motor trade is, is a tough business to be in. Yeah. Uh, you know, much. you've got to take advantage of, of whatever you can. Ask, you sure. know, ask John DeLorean or ask, <laughs> I was going to mention uh, the bloke that was recently in charge of Norton Motorcycles, but I think I'll stay very much out of that. <laughs> Yeah. That particular debacle. Yeah, so, yeah, the Nova. Hold on a sec. A few hands, and then, and then, kind of, just stopped. It was It was there one day, and then gone. After a good number of been, a good few hundred have been sold. Oh yeah, it um, was kind of. It was. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was. Was it based on the GT40, or was it meant to look like a, a Lamborghini? What? Because it, no, it, it was kind it, of. 
it was re- rear-engined, and, it, and yeah. the, the engine that was in the back was more often than not an air-cooled VW engine, wasn't nearly it? Nearly always, really, until... Yeah, nearly always. I mean, no, Richard, Richard Oakes is not the sort of man I don't think that would go, ever go down the replica route. So he kind of was inspired, and it was evocative of, but it was no way around. But, but of course, at that time, you, 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 the obvious replica for... For racy-looking kit cars, shall we say, low-slung racy kit cars, was the Beetle because they could just use the floor pan and the engine. If it was a, a an exotic-type-looking car, the engine being in the back was great because Porsche did that, you know. So and, and of course, of, it was there. And of course, the thing that I liked about it. Mm. Guess what colour it was? Go on. Oh, I was going to be. There was a lot of black ones, a lot of red ones. Um, no, I've only, no, it was orange. orange. Well, I, th- I thought they were all orange. No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, I've seen a few, but no, primarily black and silver. And was it in? Was it in some way inspired by the? Uh, I think it's real in real life. It's called the Pro, but the Durango in Clockwork Orange, the car. That... I reckon, yeah, that was probably an element of that. I think definitely, yeah, definitely. What I mean, you've what you've just said there, Steve, about about Beetle floor pans. Yeah. Does this take us back to? the late 50s and early 60s here, particularly in the UK, mm. and the era of what they would have then called a special, like right. a Bond or a Rochdale. Or oh, a... for sure. Yeah. But they were primarily Ford 8, Ford 10, or Austin 7. I mean, they were clapped out pre-war, usually clapped out pre-war Austin 7s or the old Ford 8 and 10. And, uh, they, yeah, they, they put a, uh, some sort of rakish body on. <laughs> on one of them, and they kind of, they were, a lot of those were nailed together because obviously there was no MOT test back in those days, so you lobbed the body away and put something, if it fitted, you had a lot of work to do, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it does go back to that. And then, of course, the Mayor's Manx came out and everybody... Well, hold on, hold on a sec, because I want to, before we get on to the Manx... Oh, yeah, sure. I want to talk about those specials because oh, yeah. I I wrote the foreword for the book about the Rochdale car. Yeah, there and, was a and, company. Yeah, and the, re- the re- was he called Richard Barnes, the guy that yeah. that designed the Rochdale G the Rochdale yeah. Olympic. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think the Rochdale was the best looking and the best made out of those late fifties, early sixties specials. The English nine eleven, yeah. <laughs> well I I went I'll tell you how I got interested in them. I used to be the editor of Scootering magazine. Did you? I did. The world's, at the time, the world's only kind of uh, monthly, colour, mm. newsstand publication yeah. devoted to classic Italian motor scooters. And I was there for a few years and it was, it was a great time. You kind of, you realise that stories, because it's such a niche subject, yeah. you realise that stories, you know, we only really featured Vespers and Lambrettas. So after... After 30 or 40 editions, you just think we're kind of the stories are coming around again, you know, because yeah, there's, yeah. so, there's only so much to go at. Yeah. But I really enjoyed my time there. Anyway, mm. when I first got interested in them, there was one bloke who knew how to mend a Lambretta yeah. um, in my part of town, and his name was Peter Merchant, and he had a small shop in Rochdale, Lancashire, which is just down the road from us. Mm. And so we used to spend we used to spend more time hanging around there than I yeah. would imagine he would have liked because yeah. he was about fool. He wasn't that much older than us. He was about sort of six or seven years older than us. But we were teenagers, and he was like a grown man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> who had a who had a business? And we used to think that he wanted us to hang around his shop all sure. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of you know. But yeah. he's a great bloke, mm. and uh, just around the corner from him. 
There was a monument to Rochdale cars. There was a kind of a bit of a bit of public art. There was the yeah. silhouette okay. of a Rochdale Olympic on the street and a little plaque that said, "This is the site of the original Rochdale works here." And I That's thought, really "What good. the what the hell is even a Rochdale?" I'd never, <laughs> you know, as the young people say, I'd never seen one. And I realised, and I thought. Yeah, that was what you would have... If you were a young man, and I mean a young man, like sort of 18, 19, 20 years old, in the early 60s, and you saw Sir William Lyons' Jaguar E-Type, which was, you know, they say, oh, it was affordable. It wasn't affordable if you were a young guy working in a a factory and you were 19 years old. It was was beyond your wildest dreams. Mm. But what you could do, perhaps is you could buy a Rochdale kit yeah. and, as you said, using a pre-war Ford Mechanicals, yeah. you could build something which, you know, a lot of cars that are inspired by supercars, whether they be Porsche, Lamborghini, Ferrari, are, are laughable. Yeah. But the Rochdale was a really sexy-looking little car. Yeah, and, and, and it, they got to phase two. I mean, they got, they got it ironed out, really. It was right, you know. Yeah, but... It, what I found interesting, that's how I became interested in them. So when I moved from kind of scooters onto bikes and cars and that sort of stuff, I was always interested in Rochdale. And if I ever saw any information about them or saw one at a show, I'd go and talk to the owner. I was kind of warming up to buying one. And then the bloke who um, was writing the history of the mark um, found out that I was interested in Rochdale cars. And he asked me to write the foreword. And what I found really interesting was that the kind of the point of those specials in the late 50s, early 60s was there was something like, I can't remember if it was 40 or 45%, I really should, purchase tax on a new yeah, car in the UK. Yes, there was. That, so, that was one yeah. of the big benefits. Yeah, exactly. You escaped that. So if you actually built the car yourself, yeah. you could escape paying purchase tax, which was a yeah. very big deal. And here was the thing. They weren't allowed to give you instructions. They, right. they were. They were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But here was the thing. What? Yeah. So what they did, Rochdale, and this is such a sweet story. Yeah. Uh, and somebody should make a documentary about it before these people pop their clogs. And it, it probably should be me. It should be you. Yeah. Is they would send the buyer of a Rochdale kit car mm. the addresses of the three previous purchasers. I love that. that yeah, and what happened? About that. Oh, great. there's a great story. And what happened is that people got married because they'd they they get the, they'd write to the three people and they'd say, "Oh yeah, you've got to watch out for X, Y, and Z." I tell you what, why don't I come over on the train? <laughs> so some bloke in Leeds will get on a train in Leeds and he'd go up to Newcastle or he'd go down to Birmingham where some two lads in a garage would be scratching their heads and they'd go, no, 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 you don't start yeah, with that. Yeah. This goes on here. Yeah. And then he'd end, end up marrying one of their sisters. Right. There was all kinds of people that had formed yeah. lifelong friendships, marriages, yeah. children. That be- still goes on in the kit car game, you know. There's still people that the friendships and the, the, the sort of, you know, the bonds that you make in this game. It's just fantastic. Did they go away, Steve, the, speci- the specials, as we'll call them, because of affordable cars like the Mini and the Escort. Yeah, the Mini and the Frog Eye Sprite did some damage in 59, definitely. Um, and then we, I say we, but we had to up our game, really, by giving people something, a reason to buy stuff. So, therefore, that's when the kit car, to give it its proper definition, I suppose, 
became, I think it was Falcon Shells, a guy called Peter Pellandine, who is another, how's you know, hallowed name in our game, um, created what we would call a proper kit. So he would supply you a body, a chassis, and in some cases, depending on what it was, you'd even get the engine as well. Wow. The so Falcon... Game changer. The Falcon Caribbean. Yeah, that's that? one of them. Yeah, he did lots. I mean, he was involved with a company called Ashley as well. Um, and yeah, he, he, those companies changed changed the face of it really from about from about sixty one, I suppose, when what we would call a kit car first came into into being. You know, when you got the full package, and you may have not have got a build manual and or whatever, but you might have got a sheet of paper to tell you what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. Right, so we're go- we're going to come back to um, we're going to come back to this Septonile presently, but let's go, let's cross the Atlantic, yeah, yeah, and in fact, let's go to Southern California, yeah, and let's let's look over the shoulder of Bruce Meyer yeah. as he stands there, um, thinking instead of just putting a big V eight in the front of a beach buggy, yeah, why not use something lighter that would be more agile and wouldn't yeah. get bogged down and stuck in the dunes, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're dead right. I mean, that was a game changer. Um, I've seen I've seen beach buggies from before. What we think of as a beach buggy, I think they call them rails. Which is, is oh, yeah, 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 but that's confusing because yeah. there's drag racers that are called rails. But Absolutely. it's kind of a chassis. You see why they call it a rail? Because it's just a bare chassis, a strip chassis. Yeah. It's just a car that's been completely stripped down to the chassis. They've just left the engine, the chassis, and the drivetrain, and that's yeah, it. Yeah. There's a company in the UK called UVA that, and, and another one called Kingfisher Customs, who still exist, um, that, that, that will sell you those still. I mean, yeah, they are that. That's, you know, very basic sand, yeah, sand, sand rails. Yeah, exactly. I met a bloke, um, there's a hotel called the Parker in Palm Springs, California. Yeah. And me and my missus, uh, we've been together for 11 years. She lives in Vancouver, Canada. I live in Manchester, England. <laughs> People say... How does that work? Yeah. And I say, well, it's kind of the only way it does work. I think if we live together all the time, we drive each other nuts. Yeah. So um, we, we we meet in either of those cities or we we go to Palm Springs where, you know, she's got um, – there's a family property there and we go down there. So we end up in this hotel, this incredibly swanky – I've been in – courtesy of car companies, I've been in some pretty damn swanky hotels in my time. <laughs> this one is super swanky. Mm. But we, we, at dinner, we have this giant argument. Mm. So we kind of decide to get away from... It's attracted attention. The argument's attracted attention. So we mm. kind of go down the... Um, go down right to the bottom of the landscape gardens. Yeah. And there's a fire pit down there. And we're having this massive argument. And we see some people coming out of the dark. Mm. So we stop. Mm. And um, we start talking to them instead. Do, and yeah. this bloke says, uh, oh, so, you know, what is it that you do? And I, and I tell him, uh, I think I mentioned Top Gear. I don't like to talk about it. But, you know, <laughs> I think I mentioned Top Gear. And he says, I have, I'm here and I have a classic car. And I bet, you know, X amount, whatever it is, that you won't be able to identify it. Mm. And I said, OK, because I'm pretty, I'm, I'm not bad. I knew what the Falcon Caribbean was. Mm. Yeah, good looking car. Absolutely. And... Um, I said, okay, then. So he said, come on back to the... They had, like, um, it was a hotel where they were kind of, like, American-style, like the Chateau Marmont or something like that. Yeah, they yeah. were, like, chalets in the grounds that you could... A bit more private. Yeah. So we walk over there in the dark, mm. and all I can see is the silhouette. And I said, that's a Mayor's Manx. And he went, oh, the hell 
smoking it. We can't even see it. It's pitch black. Yeah. I said, it's such a distinctive shape. The yeah. mayor, that is a mayor's manx, and the symbol is the, it's the, it's a manx cat, isn't it? The symbol or something yeah. like that? Yeah. So was, was it because, was it because there were, by that time, by the time that Bruce Meyer came up with it, there were lots of rusty beetles in the same way that there were, Lots of old pre-war Fords and Austins for the guys building specials in the UK. Yeah, I think there was that. I, definitely that. And I think there was the coolness of it. I mean, it's as cool as a cool thing, isn't it, really? Oh, yeah. And I think people, certain pe- guys of a certain age just fancied, well, that, that beats McCortina or, 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 or Miss Sierra or whatever. Let's have, let's have a go in one of those. But, yeah, but is it, che- Steve, is it cheating? Is a, is a Mayor's Manx cheating because... You, you're kind of you're using the floor pan, you're using the engine, you, you're using so much of the beetle. Mm. Are you just effectively screwing on somewhere to sit onto the onto an old beetle? How much Probably. work is there in a Manx? Quite a more than you think. Right. I mean, a lot of those need the chassis, uh, the floor pan shortening by mm, 12, 13 inches. Oh. You know, the archetypal cool. Um, right size ones, shall we say, then you need to shorten the chassis. Um, the long wheel base ones that run on an unmodified floor pan, but the cool ones that the vast line share of, shall we say, that they're running on shortened chassis. So there is a, there's a lot of work to do there. I'm thinking of uh, the disadvantage of the long wheelbase one, mm. and I'm wondering if it's where the saying comes from. They'd get beached, wouldn't they? You'd end up with, on the long wheelbase, you'd end up with both all four wheels off the ground. And, and possibly, I've, I've never said, yeah, you probably, yeah, possibly right, actually. But but, let's, but, the, but back in the 70s, I mean, there was a period from 69 to 71, and then it was kind of, the, there, was a, there was a complete tidal wave of interest in beach buggies in the UK. A company called GP, I mean, the GP buggy is kind of the, the yardstick by which UK beach buggies are measured, I suppose. At one stage, they were selling 150 kits uh, a month. Just them alone. Wow. Um, and, and I always thought, you know, Ventura Highway, tooling along in your beach buggy. Oh, yeah. Peckham High Street, maybe not as cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem, <laughs> isn't respect, it? I do respect the Peckham High Street. But that, that's the problem. In your head, yeah. you are... You're, you're going down you're, Pacific Highway, aren't you? Yeah. You're Thomas Crown. Yeah, you're, exactly. you're Steve McQueen. Yeah. You're sat next to Faye Dunaway. Yeah. You're in your mayors. Yeah. You're a... Pismo or Carmel or one of those places north of LA. Yeah. Uh, those very cool places, very she-she, very yeah, moneyed, yeah. and you're tooling around. But in real life, you're going down the, uh, you're going, you know, you, you're going down the Darwin Road towards Blackburn Town Centre, yeah, and, it, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's not the yeah. same. We've got to tip our hat, really, to a guy, a guy from, where was he, Doncaster, a guy who ran a, a double glazing company a guy called Warren Monks, um, and he, and he won, ran a company that did double glazing, but he was into his American magazines, hot rod magazines, and one day he saw a picture of a Mayor's Manx, and he thought, I could do that. And so he set up a, a sideline company called Volksrod um, in 1967, I think it was, uh, and he launched it at the St. Ledger horse racing meeting at Doncaster Racecourse. Wow, really? And he couldn't make them quick enough. I mean, he still carried on with his window business, but... He couldn't make those things quick enough. And See, he, here's the thing. Here's sorry. the thing, Steve. That's interesting. No, sorry, I'm going to butt in because. No, carry on. But I love you. I love your enthusiasm for it and your and your knowledge of the the history of the kit car. Yeah. I, I knew I knew I should get you on. <laughs> um, the legality of all this. It, it it's kind of 
we've I've got an edition of this show that I can't broadcast because mm. it's with a guy mm. who up until recently was making one of the most faithful replicas of a very desirable, much-loved and very, very valuable motor car. Really? And the reason I can't broadcast it is because shortly afterwards, the doo-doo hit the fan. Really? And he, well, yeah, because, I mean, in your world, yeah. you know, like we're saying there, I saw an interview with, with Bruce Meyer, yeah. and he never got rich because his design, if you will, there was kind of a lot of Volkswagen in that. So for him to kind of try and trademark it or to, to, to own that design is difficult because he's got to admit, you know, it's like, it's almost like, I tell you, it's not almost like it. It's exactly like it. Yeah. It's like kind of hip hop. Or, or rap music, yeah. where they'd sample James Brown or they'd sample Curtis Mayfield or Marvin Gaye, and then they'd say, this is my song, and you go, well, 60% of it is James Brown. Yeah. So are you going to yeah. pay, are you going to give James Brown 60% of the money? And yeah. the world of the kit car, Steve, as I'm sure you're aware, <laughs> is bedeviled by lawsuits and spats and yeah. rows and people yeah. ending up in jail and all yeah. that sort of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it has been over the years. We are, we, yeah, it has been quite uh, hairy at times, but we're a, we're a different beast now. Well, I was going to say, what about something like a chisel, right? Yeah. Now, I've, I like those. I think they're great. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, the quality is superb. Definitely. But when I go to their excellent website, I do not see any reference to the German mark uh, that has clearly... In spite, well, they say inspired. I mean, you know what I mean. I do know that. Yeah, there I isn't. Do. There isn't. What you mean. The P word doesn't get mentioned. It's probably an element of tugging the the, the, the lion's tail, perhaps. Um, how, but Steve, how? I'm going to ask the question that a lot of people, um, even in the car world, and people who, who profess to be petrol heads, will be asking: How is it possible for a manufacturer to offer a kit that enables you to create? an almost perfect replica of a car that was made by another huge car company without ending up in court. How, how is it possible? Some are hotter than others in terms of jumping on stuff like that. A lot, a lot just take the view that, in the case of a Chesel, I mean, it's just an exquisite thing, and they don't make them anymore, so therefore they're a sympathetic class. It's like a sympathetic tribute to, to a classic like that. Um, yeah, and there's also copyright, you know, in terms of the, 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 the limit, in terms of the time, and if some manufacturers don't renew those copyrights, so therefore it becomes, was it they say in the computer world, open source or whatever it is? Well, yeah, but here's the problem, Steve. Nah. Continuation Aston Martin DB4 GT. Yeah, don't go there. Continuation Bentley Blower. Continuation Jaguar XKSS. Well, until recently, yeah, I was going to say, until yeah. recently, mm. the, these car companies haven't shown any inclination to go back 40, 50, 80 years no. and, and recreate a car that they previously built. And now you've got the term facsimile coming into play, and as you say, continuations and such like. Yeah, exactly. Well, the problem is, when the big boys are making continuation cars, yeah. does that not spell trouble for the kit car world? Because... You know, the one, the one that, that springs to mind most obviously, and it's probably one of the most... And I'll ask you which is the most copied car or the most... It's probably a Lotus 7, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. a Cobra. Cobra, yeah, definitely, I'd say. <laughs> definitely the Cobra. When did the, when did the 
Lotus 7... Presume, did the Lotus 7 kit car start when the Lotus 7 ended? Uh, not... Yeah, Caterham... Caterham took... Caterham were an agent for Lotus for the 7 for many, many years. Um... And then they took over the rights to it and started. It became a Caterham product in 1973. Um, prior to that, there were a couple of Lotus 7 type cars around that you could buy as an alternative. There was a thing made by a dear old fella in, in Oxfordshire called George Jeffrey, And he, he would sell you something that looked similar to. But that movement really started, I guess, 90, early 80s when... Uh, Chris Smith, uh, the the legend that is Chris Smith of Westfield, um, created his take on the theme. Which was the first kit car that you built, Steve? Blimey, I helped uh, the editor of a magazine that I worked on, Kit Cars and Specials, back in 1986. A mentor of mine, really, a guy called Peter Coxhead, um, who sadly passed away many years ago now, um, helped him build a beach buggy in his shed. And then, yeah, various times... Um, oh, hold, hold on, and what, was was that done? Was the first thing that happened was that a sad, tired old beetle was purchased, or or by that time? Because presumably now, when you build a kit car, back in the day, yeah. this is what I'm saying: yeah. the first thing that you would do if you were buying a kit car is buy the donor, a Ford Cortina, a yeah. VW Beetle, yeah. an old side valve Ford, whatever it was. Yeah. So well, did you go to Stone? You know, the, the typical. Pay- You'd make the, the pilgrimage to Stoneley every year in, in May, maybe not this year, of course, sadly. Um, but you'd make that, that, that bank holiday, first bank holiday in May, you'd, you'd go off to Stoneley um, and you'd see all these manufacturers and you'd, you'd, you know, you'd say, oh, what's available? I wonder what's available. And then you'd go and you'd be completely bamboozled by the wide variety, the pretty colours of these little plastic cars. And you'd think, well, I fancy building a Cobra replica, but really and truly... What's that? GP Madison. That looks like an old Packard. Oh, I need an old Beetle for that. Let's go and get a Beetle, and I can make myself a wannabe Packard, and it'll look great. And it's run on a Beetle, <laughs> so it won't cost me any money to run. And in fact, that's what Pete Coxett had done. He, before he even got involved in that magazine, he, he did just that. And he saw this thing that was called, made by the same people that made the GP buggy. It was called a Madison, and uh, had an engine in the back. It was based on a Beetle. It looked like a little Packard. He built it, took it, built it for his daughter, actually. Took it to the petrol station just after he built it. A guy said, what's that? And he said, it's a GP Madison. And the guy said, what's that? And so he told him. And then he said, how much do you want for that, then? And so he, he literally took five grand. This is about 1984, I guess, 85. He literally took five grand off the guy. He'd driven six miles in it, <laughs> sold it, and built another one, and the same thing happened. And then he got involved in kit car, World of Kit Car magazines, and... That beach buggy that I spoke about, that was just a magazine project. A guy called James Hale, who is, if you want to know anything about the beach buggy and its history, James is the buggy guru. He lives in Brighton, I think, Port Slade. He's, he's written books on the subject. He is the guru, as I call him. Anyway, and uh, he was running a company then called GT Mouldings. And I believe, I mean, God, it's 1986. I believe he offered the mag a project build. And, um, yeah, Pete, Pete was the man. He embarked on it. And... Um, I helped him. <laughs> Steve, I'm going to ask you a question. It's just This is something that's just occurred to me, so yeah. you'll have to bear with me here. Yeah. When I used to look at, at car mags, I'd see that a lot of these, uh, the kit car companies, were based in Hampshire and places like that sort of part of the world. What, was it because of boat building? A lot of that, but then, of course, we've got stuff. You mentioned Yorkshire. A lot of um, 
sort of hands-on guys in Yorkshire, shall we say, a bit of a generalisation, but that's true. So that attracts people that were mechanically orientated. Um, the East Midlands and the West Midlands, Coventry area, where we had traditional sort of swathe of engineering, we still have got them, really, but back then we had a multitude of engineering companies where guys were really handy with spanners and making stuff and making stuff work. Um, and, of course, the Coventry had its, had its, had its, uh, its, it's got its transport origins, of course. But so, so, so there are areas where... Where there are sure hotbeds, I suppose, but there again, you've got Devon, places like Devon, where Devon and Cornwall, where pro rata, there's probably more kit cars than anywhere else. Why? <laughs> that, that, I don't know. That I don't know. Maybe it's the sun down there, and they like a they like a beach buggy and getting out on the roads that they got. You know, maybe it's that. I don't know. But certainly the the East Midlands and uh, sort of Coventry, West Midlands part, and Yorkshire. Yeah, I mean, you can probably work that one out as to why the real the real interest is there. Does the does the phases or the crazes, not on the bodywork, I'm not talking about mm. the fiberglass bodywork, mm. do the crazes in kit car construction follow the availability of the donor cars? So, you know, I'm basically saying, did the buggy thing happen because by that yeah. time there were lots of cheap rusty beetles? And did the Cobra replica thing happen because by that time... Lots of people could get their hands on Rover V8s out of old P4s and P5. And well, not so P4, P5. And, and, and P5. Six. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's definitely true. And the latest donor of, of the flavour of the month is, is the Mazda MX-5, Mazda MX-5 because, again, it's an obvious reason. It's rear-wheel drive, it's available, um, and, it's, and it's affordable. Well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you will, Steve. It, it looked to me like the Exocet is probably the most popular kit car build in the UK right now and that's based on, on what we call an MX-5 and what the yeah, Americans right. call a Miata, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that, that talking about sort of well-known kit car, specialist car designers a guy called Stuart Mills um, started a company called Mev and uh, he, he's moved on from that now but he'll be back because he always will he will be, I know he will be um, but yeah, the Exocet was one of his designs and that, yeah, you've done your homework well there I mean, that is um, the nearest we got to sort of what you call a volume seller at the minute, yeah. Well, it looked to me in the same way, as I've said, back in the late 50s, early 60s, young men would have looked at something like an E-Type and exactly thought, that. I can't afford that. Exactly that. I think 60 years on, 55, 60 years on, yeah. people are looking at an aerial atom and going, I can't afford that, but yeah. what I could do... Yeah. And, and I've seen some videos on YouTube of the Exocets, yeah. and they can be made to go very briskly. Really good. There's some beautiful builds out there. And, and yeah, I mean, Stuart was, is, was, is um, clever in his... Clever's not the right word. I mean, he's a student of, of those early days, so he's done his own work, and he understands what made these things popular in the first place. And, of course, we're... we're you know, the world is a different place completely since then. But he still looked at that market. He still looked at what made them popular. And he's kind of not re tried to re-engineer the wheel. He's doing just what you said, you know. He's offered people something that they... I've always said to him, and I've, and I've put it in print, that, you know, he offers people um, cars they can afford, well, they want to build and can afford to build. And that's, that's, if there's a secret, that's the secret to, to the MEV success, I suppose. But, yeah, just that. That, that is almost like the beach buggy... Of its day, that is almost like, as you say, the, the, the Rochdale Olympic Falcon, you know, of its, of its time. He's just latched onto that. Steve, why is it that the kit car world, 
the centre of the kit car world is so obviously Britain. Is it because we're allowed to build them under UK sort of construction and use law for vehicles, which is, I don't think we realise how lucky we are in the UK. Or is it because we've got this tradition of car building and particularly we've got the skills because there is so much motorsport in the UK? 100% that. And I think we're admired throughout the world for that because you know, the, the, the Japanese, if, you, if you've got a 60s car, say a Unipower or a little sports racer, and you want to sell it, which I can't imagine why you'd want to do that because you'd want to keep that forever. Those but, Unipowers are great-looking uh, little cars. It is, it is the, it's my favourite. It wasn't actually a kit, but it was a spe- it's a specialist enough to be considered part of our game, if, it, as you were, if you will. Um, it's just the best. Just so the Unipower was was a, a two door coupe with a Ford engine, usually, wasn't it? No, no, um, imp engine. Um, uh, oh, an imp engine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I'm thinking. Of, I'm thinking of the. Which one am I thinking of? It, it looks like an old Ferrari or Aston Martin Ford side valve engine. Um, again, that could be one of millions. There was plenty it, of those. It, it could be, time. couldn't it? There's the problem. It could be. It could be one of one of so many. But if Gilbert, you, Janetta, you know all these names from the sixties, and Janetta still going, of course. What there's a huge crossover between the kit car world and clubman motorsport, like hill climbing and sprints Massive. and stuff like that, isn't there? Massive. I remember the day. You know, we, again, kit cars and specials back in the mid eighties. The seven fifty motor club said to our publisher. Oh, we might be doing a kit car racing series. Do you reckon that that'd work? Lovely guy, um, passed away now, a guy called Dave Bradley. And he set up this kit car challenge, it was called then. And and the, the idea was it had to be road-going kit cars that you drove to the circuit and, uh, and and raced and drove home again. Of course, you had Brands Hatch, for example. You had the lay-by up the road, chock-full chock of trailers where people hadn't really driven them to the circuit. They trailered them and then driven up to the circuit from the <laughs> from the lay-by and blocked the florist off on the lay-by, which caused great consternation. But um, but you had all sorts. Of, it was great, you know. You had it was, you had stuff that should never be anywhere near a racetrack, being raced by people that had never been on a racetrack. But it was a great series, and that's still going now. But you know, you had, it was fantastic. But then, of course, you had a guy called Lee Noble who came along with yeah. what looked like a nine six Porsche nine six two. And he transformed the world of kit car rating, and it, it was the Ultima. Um, and the Ultima is, well, I guess, in, considered a supercar. Oh, well, someone said to me, oh, it's an expensive kit car. And I said, no, 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 it's a very affordable supercar. Yeah. Oh, I've seen Ultimas oh. trashing everything else Absolutely. on. Trashing cars that cost, the, to buy, Ultimas that were built for, say... 20, 30, 40,000 pounds, because at the end of the day, you're still spending a lot of money to build to build an Ultima. Oh, and they were trashing yeah. cars that cost three, four, five, six times as much to buy. Oh, yeah. If, if you're the sort of guy that wants to join the 200-mile-an-hour club, cheaply, shall we say, inverted commas, then Ultima... But, uh, Steve, is, is the ambition of every kit car maker to become a manufacturer, are they really starting off as kit car makers thinking... And one day we will, likely Noble, with Noble cars, uh, we will transition into the manufacture of, of, of motorcars. You know, I've, that, I've been pondering that. Um, we've been pondering that for 30-odd years, and I, I've never... There is a definite element of that. You think, well, I can do that, and I don't really... A lot of people have... have the story they've told me over the years is that they've gone to look at what was available, a specialist nature, couldn't find what they wanted, so did it themselves. Um, 
there's a lot of engineers and designers that just don't do people. So they num- they might produce a really promising car, <laughs> but then they just don't know. They don't know what the word marketing is. Um, they didn't. They do now, but they didn't then. That's just made me think. I've met a few of those engineers and designers exactly. who don't do people. No, exactly right, and it's not a criticism <laughs> of them per se. They just didn't understand that you had to open your doors on a Saturday morning and, and give someone a test drive of a car. Why do you want to do that? You know, they didn't understand that that's what was happening. And then, of course, people, mainstream manufacturers and dealerships became, you know, piped Muzak and top quality, well, sometimes top quality coffee and everything, you know, nice carpet, a sofa to sit on. And then public's perceptions changed. So, therefore, if they didn't expect that experience that they got at the Audi dealer, they... They expected to, um, they didn't want to tread in oil and um, fall over pieces of metal or, or, or stab themselves on jagged fiberglass shavings. Um, and and they, but a lot of these companies just didn't realise that they couldn't do that. You know, mm. it's only very relatively recently that we've had showrooms, kit car manufacturers with showrooms over the last 25 years, I suppose. You know, before, until that point, oh, why do I need a showroom? I've seen some of the most beautiful cars and motorcycles come out of the grottiest, oh, absolutely, dirtiest. Yeah, by the way, because yeah, yeah. that's passion, passion stuff. You I know, knew, I knew passion. a bloke in Preston, mm. Lancashire, mm. and he had a premises there, and it was like a troll's cave. <laughs> it was just like you say, you went in there, and you had to be really careful because there were. There was just danger everywhere. Yeah. There was like he'd just leave leave sharpness and yeah. horribleness lying around the place everywhere. Yeah. But the the stuff that came out of that workshop was beautiful and it was meticulously finished and great attention to detail. You would if you'd gone into the workshop and <laughs> with without the bikes being there, you would have thought, Oh my god, there's no way that I would and I go, No, no, wait till you see the bikes. You'd yeah, be yeah. like it can't they can't come out of here, but they did. <laughs> Steve, complete complete the title of the book for me. Um how to build a sports car for Let's build a sports car for two hundred and fifty quid. And that drive was it. it. And, and wasn't it? Wasn't the same book? Was it rewritten or was it sold in the states as "Let's build a sports car for five hundred dollars"? I believe it was. It's certainly one of Haynes. I, I don't know how these things work, but I, I certainly think that it's one of the biggest selling car titles that Haynes have ever had. They were they were completely overwhelmed by it. It's another. It's another sort of. I don't know, stick in the stands, stand, shall we say, for kit cars, because when Ron Champion, a guy, it was a school teacher from Aundel. That's um, it, Ron Champion. Yeah, yeah, and he came up with, with that book and that little car uh, in 1998, I think. Um, and it, that, that alone spawned five or six kit car manufacturers because not every, everybody seemed to like the concept. But then when they got into it, their wives didn't really want them mixing up fiberglass resin in their kitchen. Uh, to make the body panels and yeah, because make moulds. When Ron Champion said, let's build a sports car for £250, he meant it. it. So there was no, oh, I'll just buy this or I'll just buy that. It was, no, no, you will make that. Literally that. that. And not everybody wanted or could do that. I did meet a guy once at a kit car show who came came to our stand and told me proudly that he'd he'd managed to build it for 275 quid using parts of an old bed frame, (laughs) Um, scrap transit van dampers and stuff like that you know he literally literally and he was very upset that he hadn't managed to do the 250 oh right (laughs) but of course here's the problem when ron wrote that book yeah 
he would have been trading on the fact that there were loads and loads of rusty old Ford saloons Absolutely with right. nice Pintos, four-cylinder Pinto motors in them that yeah. you could get for next to nothing. Yeah. You try and buy a two-litre Pinto now. Say, the, P- the Pinto has come again. I mean, the Pinto is, is back in vogue. Um, you know, Burton Power, we supply a lot of engines and tuning expertise to our game. I mean, they, they will sell you everything T- you need. 250 quid would probably buy you a rocker cover. That's yeah, it. We'll buy you an engine. This guy literally went, I think, around, around every scrapyard and begged and borrowed, and not to mention the other word, but that he could, that he mm. could find. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, he did it. <laughs> Steve, how, how, do they, how do they get on outside of the UK? Because we've got an almost unique situation where you are allowed to do what Ron Champion said you should do and build a sports car, build the whole thing, make it effectively yeah. yourself. Yeah. And then you can go along to a, a single vehicle type approval testing centre. Yep, yep. And they will, as well, yep. Yeah, and they will assess your vehicle. I've yep. been there myself. I've, yep. uh, I've had a few nervous moments in those places. And yep. they, will, they will say, yes, you're allowed to use this vehicle on the road. Or no, it's a death trap. Go away and never... Let never darken our door again. Yeah. In but other parts of Sorry, in other parts of the world, mm. that's just completely impossible, isn't it? No, not very well. Yeah, I mean Australia has got these things called ADRs, which uh, ADR I think it's called, which uh, I think that I've been described to me as being like what's now IVA here on steroids, but they are passable. Um, if you say, the Danish market, the, the Swedish market has opened up, um, but and manufacturers are supplying cars to to to, to Sweden and, and other parts of Scandinavia. The only proviso there is the car's got to have a, a Volvo steering column. Um, what about Germany? Germany's got two for TUV. Um, please don't ask me to tell you what that is in, in its um, non, non-truncated form. Um, that's quite tough, but there are there are companies there that will. That will get you get these. Well, they act as agents, and they know how to get legally through through the regulations. They have become tighter. You know, the European. I, I, the view was that uh, when we were still in Europe, if you if you built a car in the UK, like you can go and work in France unhindered, or you could, um, you should be able to build a car in the UK and and, and uh, legally register it in France. Didn't happen. Couldn't happen. The, the tape that was the, the red tape. France is a, is a great source of I don't know, frustration I suppose because the demand is there, the interest is there but we can't really register our cars very successfully there um, What the kit car for me epitomises the, the kind of the ambition, the vaulting ambition yeah. of the garageist yeah, as exactly Enzo right. Ferrari would have described yeah. him Exactly that you're there in a garage in in South London or yeah. or Berry Lancashire or wherever you yeah. might be. We are the garageistas, surrounded by oily parts, yeah. drinking a mug of tea out of an enamel cup. Not oily now, but definitely the tea because it's driven. It's, it's powered by tea. Definitely. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> and you think to yourself, I can build a sports car. Exactly right. I, I, and and you look at that drawing that you did on the inside of your cover of your maths jotter yeah. when you were fourteen, and you think, yeah. I'm going to build the Berry Special or whatever. Which one of those, and, and the vast majority of those dreams are going to end in ashes. That's, that's the way it's going to end. Which one for you have you not been able to work out why it didn't succeed? There must be a kit car where you've thought, that was a brilliant design, it was a great idea. Why didn't it succeed? I've just done... Um, funnily enough, last night we were talking about uh, 
um, purple patches for writing. I just did a feature called The Ultimate Ones That Got Away, and I've listed ten there oh, that, right. that I think should have should have been smashes. Should have been should have signed the Beatles, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, there's also there's a, there's, there's um, oh gosh, where do we start? I mean, there's a, there was a thing called an ASD Minim, which was based on the Mini. Created by a really nice, lovely engineer called Bob Eggington. He used to work for John Surtees' Formula One team and Tyrrell. And he created this thing that looked like hmm, it wasn't the best, wasn't the prettiest car, but by crikey. It used to go, it would go around corners as if on rails. It wasn't very fast because it had a little A-series engine, but it was the most beautiful, purest thing you could drive. Sold six of them. There's hundreds like that. And it's going back, I think, to what I said about they just didn't know how to market. They just didn't know that they should be welcoming to people when they came to. And I've got to say, now the industry has changed completely. I mean, you're going to get a really good experience. The passion's still there. The cars are still there. But the quality is just unbelievable. When I hear people sort of scoff. I mean, we all used to laugh at Skoda, I guess, 25 years ago. I now, didn't. Now, if you like, no, you didn't. You, you understood. But lots of people did. Uh, but now, if people laugh at Skoda, I think they are the joke, really, because we all know what's happened there. And the kit car industry at the moment is just, we, you know, it's just unbelievable. There are so many brilliant cars and people with a passion and a desire to sell you them and help you build them and enjoy them. But is it not much harder to build a kit car now because the donor car is inevitably going to be uh, loaded with electronics. Yeah, but I mean, we, yeah, we get around that. We, 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 we use the parts we need to use. There's companies such as Omex, and I'm going to get hammered by the ones I forget to mention, Emerald. You can go and buy a beautiful little box, a mappable ECU, and you can tune that car to however you want it to, to be, it can have all the bits that from that donor. If you use a donor, let's not forget, lots of kit cars now don't even use a donor. Uh, we're using all new parts and from a variety of sources off the shelf. But so they'll 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 allow you or they'll map it for pre-map it for you so that it will recognise that it's not looking for the electric windows, it's not looking for the central locking, it's not looking for the air conditioning, but it will get that engine starting and not locking itself out as soon as you start it on a 34th occasion, which it would do if you just took the, the mm-hmm. donor ECU. My pal, he sold an Aston Martin V8, mm. and he bought, he built rather, mm. a Dax Cobra. Fantastic. Um, and whenever anybody would disparage this car, mm. he did a great job as well. The car was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Blue with the Shelby stripes, Halibrand knockoff wheel. Oh, yeah. it was yeah. just a great looking car. Yeah. Whenever anybody would say to him, yeah, but it's a kit car. And he'd say, yeah, but the Cobra was always a kit car. It was an AC <laughs> chassis made in, made it by AC cars in England. Yeah. And it was a Ford V8 made in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. And How- the first replica of it appeared in 65 in the States when they were still making them. So, yeah, exactly. I, I think the Cobra, I, I, I think. Say you know the age that I am and the sort of disposition yeah. I am. I've already admitted to owning a an Eagle SS. That was a car that we that was a car that we specifically brought for a project. Yeah. Um, 
this is going to sound terrible, Steve. I don't know whether you're going to like this. Because as part of this project, it was going to get sawn in half. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I can't bring myself to do it. Yeah, I can't. It's in the corner of the workshop, yeah. and I've we we've, we're kind of having a rethink because we like it too much. Yeah. I mean, it's got it's meant to be a gag, right? In in this in this little film, yeah. where people f- imagine it's going to be a Lamborghini because it's from the seventies and yeah. it's got gullwing doors, so they think we're going to cut a Countach in half, yeah. and then we end up cutting this poor illegal in half, but. We like it too yeah, much to cut to cut it in half, and I've I've found out that there's a whole community of people in the UK and in the US who feel really passionate because I think there was it was called the Symbrian in the US. Symbria. Yeah, the exactly Symbria. right. It's yeah. probably I think there's 17 various iterations of that Nova around the world, or have been. Wow, it's, been, it's one of the most apart from the Cobra. It's probably one of the most copied cars around, really. But you do wonder why 17 different people thought, yeah, what people, what people want is um, a fiberglass car with an air cool that looks kind of like a Lamborghini, but with a VW engine in the back or, or a, a Pinto in the front. But then I think about companies like Marcos and TVR, who have built amazing cars, but w- would you consider either of those to have started as kit cars, Steve? Oh, definitely so. Lotus, too. I mean, Lotus were... Yeah, but you've got to be careful, because I, I love Lotus people, and I love TBR people. I really do. You mentioned to some of them the word kit and car, and, or the words kit yeah. and car, and they go absolutely ballistic. They, until 1973, you could buy, buy a Lotus Elan or whatever, and you could... Lotus called it a CKD, a complete knockdown. And you could... Lotus people say that it'd take you a weekend to connect the uh, battery, put the seats in, put a steering wheel on it, and then you're off, off and went. Fair enough. But they were still classed as kits. I mean, Lotus would still have been classed as a kit car company until 1973, yeah. And but don't, men- don't mention that to someone who's at Goodwood with their original Lotus Elite. You go, oh, yeah, that's from when they were a kit car company. They'd go nuts. Yeah, they do. They do indeed. They, some of them do, because not all were, but some were. Um, but it, I, I've got a theory about this, but mm. I want to know what you think, Steve. Mm. Why do you think there is so much prejudice against kit cars out there? Because when I started in this game, if you mentioned the word kit car, people people would laugh. As you said earlier on, people would laugh. You little kids would throw stones at them because they, <laughs> had, this, they had this little, they had this stigma. But what I was saying earlier on, that that has gone now, you know. And but but the stigma still remains. You know, I speak to, you know, people from. Other uh, mainstream journalists like yourself who who, who write. Oh, I'm not mainstream. mainstream. <laughs> well, more mainstream than, than, than us guys, mate. But um, the, the, there was, um, you know, talk to someone from Autocar, and I love that magazine, but you talk to someone there, and they'll say, Phew, you're a kit car journalist. If I've got, sometimes I get invited to some of these um, these driving days from mainstream manufacturers, and it's kind of, oh, all right, Steve, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> do you write about proper cars? And I say, I do, but I'm not writing about them today. <laughs> Steve, what happened to the old Q plate that used to? A Q plate would often damn a car's resale value, wouldn't it? Because yeah. it, it, people went, "Oh, it's a kit car." Yeah, and non-transferable. Once you got them, you couldn't get rid of them. Well, what, they what were stigmas once? They were sort of stuff that come from an unknown origin, shall we say? Well, I haven't seen a Q plate for ages. What happened to them? Can you? No, can you... because the way we built, 
you've got radically, you know, radically altered, you've got kit built, you've got kit conversions, and the DVLA or VOSA, you've got a point system. So if you use a certain amount of components from a known source or a single source, like a donor, you can get an age-related plate more often than not. And there are a lot of kit cars deliberately engineered to to get an original plate because they know that's what people prefer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely right. I mean, it's, um, yeah. But there's nothing wrong. I don't think there's anything No, wrong if you it. use the chassis and the engine, for goodness sake, that's yeah. the car. We were talking about rails. Exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. a car that's stripped to the chassis and the engine, no one would think... Oh well, that needs a different form of registration, and we're going no. to put we're going to put this registration plate on yeah. that means that it's worth next to nothing when it's resold, and it's yeah. a big problem for the owner. Can no, we exactly be- right? I mean, no, there was a stigma attached, and I don't necessarily think that that that's valid anymore, really. Can we talk briefly <laughs> <laughs> about replicas? Yeah, because I wonder I wonder what relationship there is between kits and replicas, and you'd be able to tell me, are they different people? Um, that's a very good question. We're all part of the same fraternity. There's a, some, some, of my, some of my colleagues would say that replica people are kit car enthusiasts until they get the replica and then go off and do whatever they do with it. And then they kind of, they're not kit car people anymore. They, they, they own a replica. But by and large, we're all, we're all in it together, shall we say, and right. everybody's there. But no, I mean, there, there's certainly a, 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 there's two attitudes to replicas, of course. You know, some people look down their nose and say, well, what on earth would you want that for? Whereas most people that I've ever met have said, that's a great idea. I can't afford two million on whatever on a C-type, but I can afford 50, 60 grand on a decent, sympathetic tribute to that car, you know? Yeah, I... Um, I went out for a day with a chap, this was for a radio feature a, lo- a long time ago for the BBC, mm. who'd built a replica of a pre-war Alfa Romeo 8C. Oh, brilliant. Oh, yeah. It was a fan- I think it was called the Apennine. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously there's the Apennines in Italy, yeah. and then we've got the Pennines here, yes. in, uh, here in England. Yes. And his his works was in the shadow of, of the Pennine, so he called it the Apennine. It was yeah. it was a clever little play on words, and the the car was a very faithful tribute because, of course, the further back you go, mm. the easier it is in in a way because you know cars were fairly primitive devices yeah. back then. Not yeah. saying that an Alpha Eight C was primitive. I'm just saying that yeah. there were fewer components. A wire yeah. wheel is a wire wheel. People yeah. still make them. Yeah. We went out for the day. And I said to him, and it was the thing, the funniest thing was, he was quite a well-to-do guy. Mm. He had plenty of money. Mm. And I said to him, um, wh- wh- why did you do it? Why, have you, why not, you know, I, I don't think he could afford a real one, but he could certainly could have afforded yeah. a real 8C. Yeah. He could have certainly afforded a very nice car sure. to drive round in on a sunny afternoon like we were doing. Sure. Uh, and I said to him, why not just get an old Jaguar or a Fraser Nash or a, yeah. an Austin Healey or something like that? And he said, when I was a boy. Yeah. And I thought so many conversations yeah. about kit cars, Steve, must go. start with when I was a boy. You took the words out of my mouth. Exactly that. Yeah, definitely. definitely. People, are just, people are just creating something that they've carried around in their head yeah, yeah. for 20, 30, 40 years. They've yeah. thought... 
One there's day. Always, there's always been this, I think, in the UK particularly. Well, I think worldwide, really. Definitely the UK. And so, some some reason, New Zealand and Australia, there's been this tall room copy um, movement um, around the Jaguar mark. Mm. Uh, certainly classic one. So I think that's been an accepted sort of thing, I, I, I believe. Well, um, the, f- the funny thing was, there's a guy called Roger Williams... Yeah, I know Roger very well. Right, well, here's the thing. Makes beautiful, go away, Fraser now doing it, his son, makes beautiful cars. Here's how I found, recently found out what Roger Williams was doing. I was, we were doing something about road legal single-seaters. Mm. And I remembered from when I was a boy. Lotus 51, flower power, there's one, wasn't it? Remember that, the road, road legal Lotus? But anyway, well, sorry. Mm. Roger Williams, yeah. He had the, Roger Williams, who started the Will Hire 24-hour yeah. race. Yeah, that's right, that's it. Had a road legal single-seater car. Didn't know that about him. Well, and it was featured in either Custom Car or Street Machine magazine. Right. It was a Formula 2 car, Formula 3 car, something like that. <laughs> It was probably a Lotus because he was he was based very much in that part of the world yeah, down yeah, near them indeed. with it, with Will Hire his big uh, yeah, yeah. hire company. Netizen twenty four hour, yeah. And for you know, and 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 so somebody said to me, the only road legal single seater. No, no, hold on a second. Yeah. Thirty five years ago, forty years ago, there was a bloke called Roger. I'd remembered mm. there was a bloke called Roger Williams who ran a company called Will Hire. Yeah. And they said no, no, and then we found one. On the internet, we found a tiny black and white picture, which looked like it had been photographed from the page of the magazine. And I was like, there it is, mate. And he said, what he said to me, this guy, guys know me quite a while, and he said, how the hell have you remembered that? And yeah. I said, you're joking. Yeah. You know, I was like 12 or, yeah. or whatever when I saw that picture. Yeah. And for the next God knows how many years, I was thinking, I'm going to put a single-seater on the road. I'm going to get a single-seater. You know, I'm never going to forget that guy's name, and I'm never going to forget that he had a a road-legal single-seater formula car. That's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, because we're that and Peter Philby and his his columns in Hot Car magazine. Um, When I was a kid, my my dad ran a garage near the Trojan factory in Croydon, and I went to school near there, and I'd go to my dad's garage, and every day I'd walk past this little factory, this nice factory, where they were making bubble cars. And they were also doing McLaren road cars there as well, and, and Elva, of course. Um, and so that kind of was the, the, the germ that got into my, into my blood then, I think, really. I think there's two kinds of car people, Steve. Mm. There's, there's people who want to buy one, and there's people who want to make one. Yeah. You know, and the yeah. people that buy them, I'm not criticising those people at all. No, exactly. You might have to go a different way in this life. Mm. Or you might have to do... I, I'm thinking of a friend of mine. I'm not going to embarrass him by naming him, but... There's no way he could make his own car because yeah. he's he runs a huge business. Loads of people rely on him for their livelihood, yeah. and he has to spend a great deal of his time doing that. Mm. When he does have some leisure time, he has some very nice cars, which other people made in Italy or, yeah. <laughs> or America yeah, yeah. or Japan. Yeah. He gets them out of his garage, he enjoys them, and he puts them back. Yeah. But I found so much. I've I've never built a kit car, but I've restored a few cars yeah. and I've worked on cars and I've built up motorbikes and stuff like that. Yeah. I've never felt the same satisfaction from any other car or mm. bike mm. that I've had from one that I had helped to create yeah, or to restore go. or whatever. Yeah, there there really is a special feeling. I think everyone who's ever built a kit car like your man with his Madison who sold it after he yeah. drove it for six miles, they'll never forget the first time 
that they set out on the open road in a car that they built themselves. That's right. And the amount of people that there's lots of people that stick with it for their for their adult life, but there's other people that go away, come back, go away, come back. Once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. It's a passion. I have never, Steve, and I know that you can't say anything because of your position. I have never understood people who build a 12-cylinder Cobra replica, a 6-cylinder Cobra. A Cobra has a V8. End of story. Rover made lots of Buick V8s. Go and get one of those and put that in the damn Cobra. Stop putting a 12-cylinder engine or a 6-cylinder engine. If you're going to build a replica, make sure that... I mean, is there a Pontiac Fiero left in the world? Probably, I've not seen one for years. No. <laughs> well, but because they've all they've all been turned or, or yeah. it's MR two, so they've all been turned into replicas of a of a Ferrari. Yeah. That it's that it's genuinely not that difficult to get your hands on. If you look at the hundreds of hours that someone has spent turning an MR two into an unsuccessful copy of a Ferrari three sixty. Perhaps if you'd work to job those hours, you might actually be... You, you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. you, you're not going to be able to afford an Alfa Romeo 8C. You're not yeah, going to be able they... to afford a Porsche 550 Spider. So by all means, replica it. But if the car is kind of achievable, why would you spend hundreds and hundreds? Because t- I mean, what's the average build time on a kit car, Steve? Oh, it's going to be... Oh, bloody... Could be 1,500 hours. Yeah. It could be. Find a job that pays a decent hourly rate, work that job and use that to buy that achievable, expensive but achievable car. Yeah, I think a lot of people get what well, use what they, they they can get access to. A lot of people just want to do it and their hearts beat out of their chest because they built it regardless. And I've seen that so many times. And how can you criticise someone that comes up to you, yeah, I... you in the eye and he says, do you want to see my car? And, and it's, it's, his heart is beating out of his chest. It's, it's, it's yeah. heartwarming really. And, but don't forget, the Americans laugh at us because they'd never put a put a put a, a Chevy engine in a Cobra replica. We do. I mean, in, the lion's share of Cobras in the UK are using LS3s, uh, you know, LS, LS7s these days. I mean, what's wrong with them, by the way? I mean, you turn that you turn that key on that engine, and every hair on your body will stand up, and and that that V8 will just thump its way through you. Your whole being. I totally see the point of Cobra V8 replicas because you know, like like we said earlier, mm. um, the, there's a very strong argument that the original Cobra, whether as you're an American and you call it a Shelby Cobra, mm. or more accurately, if you're a Brit, you call it an AC Cobra. Yeah, yeah. It was a existing British chassis yeah, yeah. with an existing Detroit built uh, V8 in it. And don't forget, if you want a pure as pure proper AC. Go and see Hawk Cars in Tum- just outside Tunbridge Wells, although he's actually in East Sussex, so he can't say he's in Kent. He's just over the border, and he will sell you the most beautiful AC Ace kit. One of the best, one of the best uh, cars, full stop, that I've driven, not just not kit cars, any car, mm. was a, uh, a GTD, is that? A GT40 replica? Yeah, GTD. Oh, that, no, there's a company run by... Ray the Rodfather, Christopher. What what a beautifully made car Beautiful. it was, and the highest quality componentry, and great to drive. But unlike an actual Ford GT40, uh, not available for millions and millions exactly of pounds. Right. Exactly right, and and those and, it's, and what's what's notable noticeable about those cars in particular, and, and others like them, is they're accepted by the shall we say the cognoscenti. They're accepted by the 
classic car per- sales purveyors. So you'll quite regularly see a GTD for sale in one of these high, you know, high-end classic car uh, sort of sales companies. They're accepted by by the people in in in, in the know, shall we say? It's funny though, isn't it? There's a I, I know somebody else who's in the business of creating replicas of C and D type Jaguars. Oh yeah. But if you use the K word. <laughs> kit car, which is essentially what it is. I, I mean, at the that. end of the day, I never, I don't get that. I, I really don't. It's I, I, Steve. I, it's snobbery. It, it, it's it's it. right. You can't say it, so I will. Yeah. It's pure and simple snobbery. And if we pretend yeah. that snobbery doesn't exist in the car world, mm. you only have to go to one of these events where everybody's wafting about on the yeah. manicured lawns, whether yeah. it's Pebble or Villa Este or Goodwood or yeah. Salon Privé yeah. or wherever it is. Yeah. Now, there's something great about that, and I enjoy going to these places and seeing yeah. short wheel-based uh, Maserati yeah, specials yeah. or whatever, yeah, something yeah. like that. But you'll often see a car there and you'll think, yeah, essentially that that... Um, Ford V8 engined, Italian bodied, yeah. low volume. It's a kit car. Really refreshing um, people, owners of, of, of those sort of cars, and they'll tell you quite quite happily it's a kit, or it's a replica, or it's a continuation. But they'll also say, "Well, yeah, I raced this at Goodwood, shall we say, or somewhere or anywhere for that matter, Silverstone Classic, because I don't want to damage me real one." That happens. I've heard that time and time again. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.